Lord, that is our prayer, that you would now speak through the preaching of your word, that your church would be built, and that your glory would fill the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. This morning we're going to continue our study through Paul's great epistle to the Romans. However, before we dive into chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, I think it will serve us well to briefly review kind of the ground that we've covered. Um, Pastor Gary said to me last week, he says, I notice each week uh, we're taking a step deeper into deeper waters. And I said, yeah, that's pretty much the case. Uh, Romans is like a a slope. If you think of like being in the ocean, the waters, you get your toes in it, but you don't really notice it. But every step you take, you're you're going just a little bit deeper. And well, this Sunday is going to be no different. And so I thought it'd be helpful for us to get our bearings so that we're not floating aimlessly, Uh, that we can kind of know where we are, even if some of us are drowning. Uh, at least we know how close or how far away we are from shore, okay? And uh, in thinking about the book of Romans, the book of Romans begins and really permeates throughout the entire letter um, on an emphasis on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul says infamously, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone. Who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is emphasizing in this letter that the good news is for everyone because it addresses everyone's greatest need. It addresses the great dilemma that every human being faces, and that is to be forgiven of their sins and brought into a right relationship with their God, their loving Creator. And so for this reason, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, Paul begins to unpack this dilemma of humanity, begins to unpack the the depths of our sin and our inability, and he describes it as being sold under sin, that we are under a power, a force that has held humanity captive. And as a result of being under sin, we're under the judgment of God. And he says, on that day, on that last day in which God will reveal himself in glory and might, and he will reveal the works of humanity, no one will be able to have an excuse on that day for not loving and worshiping him and giving thanks to him as their God. Well, this complete inability of humanity illustrates that salvation can only be by faith, by grace. Christ alone, that we are completely unable in and of ourselves to to bridge this gap of this relationship with our Creator. And so Paul's climactic point in chapter 4 is that God justifies, He, He forgives, He cleanses sin, He does not count the sins of the ungodly against them if they have put their faith and trust in Christ. He exemplified this in the fact that God justified unrighteous Abraham and unrighteous David, not by their actions, not by their works, but because they trusted. 
And so chapter 5 begins a new section of the letter. And in chapter 5, really, this section permeates all the way to chapter 8. And so we find ourselves in this territory. Paul has emphasized our, our great problem, the sin of humanity, that we are under the just judgment of God, but that God, through Christ and through faith in Him, has provided satisfaction for our sin. He has provided atonement. He has washed us from our sins. Well, chapter 5, then, turns to apply this doctrine of justification. What benefits or positive benefits do we now have as a result of having our sins forgiven? What positive benefits do we have being in Christ, being related to Him. In particular, in chapter 5, he begins to emphasize that we have peace with God. We, we stand under the loving rule of His grace. And brothers and sisters, we have a hope that will not disappoint. And Paul unpacks these themes throughout chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 by juxtaposing our old life under Adam sin, the law, and death with our new life in Jesus, righteousness, grace, and life. And if you've been with us, that's been the theme. Chapter 5 was Adam and Christ contrasted. And then later he contrasts sin and grace, or righteousness and, and the law. He begins to contrast life and death. And what we've been seeing is that in Christ... That one's union with the risen Savior, the power of sin, law, and death have been nullified. That is what he's been saying. And he's been using very vivid language like, you were dead, but God's grace resurrected you. You were enslaved, but it was God's grace that unlocked the shackles of your heart. And all this is bearing down, understanding this amazing grace and truly, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Brothers and sisters, if you do not get the depths of our problem, you won't understand the heights of grace. You won't. You have to see that there is no hope for humanity in these passages. There's no hope that somehow they're just going to figure it out. That the light's just going to flicker apart from God's grace. And so what he's unpacking for us is not that the, the cross merely just was a great example of, of God's undying love for humanity, but the cross was effective in the life of the believer. That the same power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that rose your dead heart to life. And that's what he's been talking about. And if you're an Adam, you're under sin, and you're under law, and you're under death. But God's grace has come, and it has plucked you out of the, the depths of your filth, and it has pulled you over into a new realm under a new Adam, Christ. And new powers reign over you. The powers of righteousness, the powers of grace, which don't lead to death, but they lead to life. And chapter 6, then, is a response, though, to this gospel. This good news, it's almost as if this good news is just too good to be true. Are you serious, Paul? If it's that bad, I just have to trust Jesus and my sins are accounted for? That he remembers them no more? That he washes my slate clean? And here's the objection. That gospel will just result in more sin. 
It can't be that way. And as we saw last week, well, that's because you don't understand grace. Grace is the grace that saves, but it's also the grace that transforms. And that God is working in us from beginning to end to complete that work until the resurrection of the dead. And so this now leads us to chapter 7. And the question that's kind of been looming over chapter 6 and now 7 is found in, in verse 15 of chapter 6. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? He's contrasting these two realms. In chapter 7, Paul's continuing to answer that question. And this is how it's coming at this time. How can freedom from law result in righteousness? How can freedom that you're no longer under law, commands, demands on your life, result in righteousness? That just sounds absurd. Like I said, in chapter 6, he's a, he, he went from it, at it from the powers of grace. Well, you, don't, you need to understand that this is not some passive agent just out there, and it just kind of is a neutral action. No, God's grace is actively saving people. I mean, that's what we just prayed for with the palms, right? God, open up eyes. We plant, we water, but ultimately, what do we pray? God, give growth. Well, that's the grace. That's the power of grace we're asking to work there. Well, now in chapter 7, Paul comes at it from the other angle. Those of you who insist on law. He begins to go at it and undercut that whole argument by showing the inability of the law to produce righteousness. In fact, Paul goes so far to say that the only way to be free from sin is to be freed from the law. And so over the next few Sundays, we're going to unpack this because, brothers and sisters, this is going to rock our world. Because most of us think we're gospel people, but often we're law people. And we're going to unpack this because we're going to find ourselves having this same objection. Oh, hold on, hold on. That will promote sin if I do that. If I am not a law person, that's usually not how we say it, but that's what our actions are saying. Well, then there's just going to be rampant sin in my life, or in my kid's life, or in this church. And Paul says, then you're underestimating the power of grace, and you've overestimated the power of the law. And so this morning, I really had high hopes to accomplish a lot, and in a sense, I, I do think we will, but I decided this is going to have to take a few Sundays. And, and, and so we're, we're going to unpack and lay some foundations to understand how the law is unable to produce righteousness in your life, in your kid's life, and in the world, okay? And that's going to have massive implications for us. And I think we agree in, in general. It's just when we start getting the specifics, it starts applying to my life, oh, that's when I get a little uncomfortable. But I hope that this will actually be freeing because that's what the gospel is. Where gospel is happening, where gospel life is flourishing, there's freedom, brothers and sisters, not slavery. There will be joy. There will be peace. There will be patience. There will be gentleness. It will be the joy and the fruit of the Spirit. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. That we were saved, that grace came so that we may bear fruit to God, and the law doesn't bear fruit. You know what the law produces? It produces death. The fruit of death. And so here's the question that I want to kind of unpack and answer over the next few Sundays. And we're going to, over the next few Sundays, just cover chapter 7. How does the gospel, as opposed to law, nullify sin and produce righteousness? That's, that's what I want us to consider. Let me say this again. How does the gospel, as opposed to law, nullify sin and produce righteousness? And how we answer this question, brothers and sisters, is going to have massive implications. As individuals and as a church. This morning we're just going to look at verses 1 through 6. And as we look here, we're going to answer the question this way. This is kind of bird's eye view, and then the next two Sundays we'll, we'll dive in even further. This is the answer to that question. The gospel of grace sets us free from the law by which we were held captive to our sin, so that we may bear fruit to God by the new way of the Spirit. Okay? I know that's a lot. That's why we're going to have to take three weeks to unpack it. Let me say it again. The gospel of grace is what sets free. Sets us free from the law which enslaved us, which held us captive to our sin. It sets us free from that for a purpose, that we may bear fruit to God by the new way of the Spirit. Okay? That's the positive. The negative is the law cannot do this. That's what he's going to say. The law can't do this. Only the gospel can do this. And so my points this morning are, apart from the gospel, we're captive to the law. Through the gospel, we're freed from the law. And through the gospel, we bear fruit by the Spirit. Okay, And we're, we're going to tackle it this way. So let's begin, apart from the gospel, so this is under law, we are captives to the law, okay? Apart from the gospel, we are captives to the law. And Paul reminds of this, of this reality as he begins in verse 1. He says, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Paul says, I'm speaking to those under the law, or those who know the law. He, he's stirring up his audience by way of reminder. He, he's not kind of singling out a particular group. He's not just talking to the Jews. He's talking to the entire congregation because he assumes they know the law. In fact, in, in the church in Rome, Paul is literally writing parts of the New Testament as, as we're at this point. They don't even have this letter as he's writing it. So what are, what are their scriptures? Well, it's the Old Testament. And so what he's doing here is he's assuming something about them. He's assuming they know the Old Testament. He's assuming that they know the law. May I ask, do you know the law? Is he speaking to you? I might plug the Deuteronomy class in discipleship classes starting next quarter. If you do not know the law, and all these things are foreign to you, you need to be in that class. Because Deuteronomy is a summation of the law. 
There'll be a great class that Kirby O'Brien and Ryan McGee are going to teach, okay? Commercials ended, all right? If you know the law, Paul says, and he's assuming you do, well, then you know this. It's binding on a person. It's enslaving to a person. It binds a person as long as that person lives. Okay, no problem, Paul. All I have to do to get out from the law is die. That's what he says. That, that, that doesn't sound very hopeful. And therein lies the point. Law is hopeless. It's binding. It sets a standard that no one can meet, and yet everyone is bound to so long as they live. And Paul says there's no way around it except through death. And he moves on in verses 2 through 3 to illustrate what he means by addressing or focusing on the law of marriage. And this is likely in reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And if you were to read there, verses 1 through 4, you're, you're going to see a woman, and he's talking about a woman and a husband and, and the laws concerning divorce. And what you'll find is that a woman had no rights to divorce. And so Paul is probably making inference from verse 24 that a woman, as he says in verse 2, is bound by law to her husband while he lives. Well, the husband could give a certificate of divorce. Now, we don't have time to unpack all these things. But here's what I do want to emphasize here, is that we're, we actually get an assumption made again by Paul in the Scripture about what marriage is. We see here in these two verses that marriage is permanent. He assumes that only death parts a married couple. And as we're going to see here in just a moment, that divorce and remarriage is adultery. Those are assumptions. Now again, this is not an exhaustive look. There, the scripture in Matthew chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 7 has understands that, that we live in a fallen world and there are circumstances such as marital infidelity and abandonment which permit divorce, but Outside of that, it's, it's this, death do us part. Otherwise, it's adultery. So Paul uses this to illustrate his point that the law is binding. Look in verse 2. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. This is what Paul is trying to emphasize here. He says, here's just one example of how death releases one from the law. That's what he's trying to articulate. And he's going he's to make some connections. The analogy isn't one-to-one, -one, but here's what he's trying to emphasize. This is what the point he's trying to uh, press upon us, is that when death occurs, one's relationship to the law changes. And he just picks out one illustration where a woman was completely bound by the law. She, she had no rights under it to get out from under it unless death occurred. And what Paul is saying is, so it is for you. So it is for humanity. Everyone is under the bounds of the law, the shackles of the law, the power of the law. And unless death occurs, you cannot be released from it. 
You can see why that's hopeless, right? That's, that's chapters 1 through 3 right there. It's just in one sentence. You're dead. And there is no way you can liberate yourself. No way. And in fact, you're so enslaved you don't even realize it. We were talking about this in our, in our missions class. Corey Bledsoe was just talking about um, a, a homeless individual that he spoke to. And you know that Corey works at the Southern Indiana Rescue Mission, Louisville Rescue Mission. This is what he does. And one of the reasons the individual said he likes to remain homeless is because he doesn't have to listen to people tell him what to do. But Corey reflects, he said, but that's exactly all he does. You will eat at this time. You can't sleep on that bench. You have to move over here. This is where you get your clothes. This is where you get your next meal. But that was a perfect illustration of the slavery of our law, sin, and death. You think you're free, but you're actually bound. You don't even realize it. That's what Paul's saying here. The law is binding on a person so long as he is alive. And it's not until death occurs that one is released from it. So what is this binding like? What what does this practically feel like? Well, it looks like this. Though the law, and we'll just use this one as an illustration, commands you not to commit adultery. Let's just, just make that one, just one command that the Scripture has. You shall not commit adultery. That command, apart from the gospel and the work of regeneration, cannot produce repentance and faith and godliness. That's not, it can't do it. Look at what it does, verse 5. Paul, Paul expounds upon this more. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, what? Aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That command doesn't restrain sin. It actually arouses sin, he says. It produces it. And so the reason, number one, that law and demands and commands without the gospel are are fruitless is because they actually increase sin. They don't address sin. They don't resolve sin. They don't promote godliness. Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 20. So now the law came in to increase the trespass. Came to increase the trespass. Later in chapter 7, where we'll look next Sunday, verses 7 through 8, listen to what he says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That's just like the mother who says to the child, hey, do not eat any cookies before dinner. Why don't you know there were cookies? But now I do. And all I want is a cookie. Right? This was Israel's experience under the law. The entire history of Israel is the command coming and sin increasing and abounding all the more. After God redeemed Israel out of Egypt so that they may serve Him and worship Him, 
Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. However, what was going on? Israel was busy making a golden calf to worship. And the imagery is quite vivid. They began carousing around with immorality with one another as they worshiped this false idol. The law came and did not change that. It just increased it. And if you know the story of Israel's tragic history, their tale is of continued stubbornness which resulted in them acting just as godless and in pagan as the surrounding nations. Once you get to the book of Judges, they are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Read the book of Judges. It's depressing. And it sounds just like our culture. There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what the law promises. Or that, excuse me, that's what sin promises. And the law cannot counter, it just condemns. You're independent, you can do whatever you want. Come joy sin and the pleasures of sin and you will have freedom. And oh, it may feel like freedom, but it blinds you and it's actually slavery bearing fruit to death. And all the law does is tell you, do not do. And your sinful heart, my sinful heart, apart from the regenerating work of God in our life, says, you can't tell me what to do. That is at the bottom of the sinful nature. That's why Paul says no one seeks for God, right? There are no God seekers. This is why Jesus says, you love me because I what? I first loved you. There has to be resurrection, brothers and sisters, of the heart before the heart changes and wants the Lord. And that's the grace that he's been talking about. The law doesn't do that. It's interesting as we're going to see the laws on stone tablets. It's up on a mountain. There's a mediator between God and, and man, and that's Moses. And when Moses comes down, he has a veil over his eyes because they don't want to see the glory. And Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians that that was a judgment on Israel. They said, we don't want to see this God. You go deal with him. And so Moses hides the glory of God from them every time he comes down. Everything's outside of them, and it's coming and it's pressing, and it's commanding them, and all they are feeling is judgment. The problem, as we're going to see in, in the coming weeks, is not with the law, it's with us. It's because we're so stinking wretched. We hate God, no matter what label we put on it. When the glory of God is on full display, the unregenerate heart says, turn off the light. I don't want it. It's not until the heart's regenerated that we then say, I want the light. That's what he's trying to get at here, and he's saying the law can't do that, okay? And that is the story of Israel. They had the great privilege of the law but yet it could not regenerate the heart. So in the same way, apart from the gospel, God's commands did not produce godliness in you, did they? Rather, they aroused our passions. Our parents told us not to do things, which meant at least I have new things to, to pursue, right? 
Don't do that. Oh, okay. What, what am I missing out on? That was always my thought. Gave me far new desires to pursue. This principle is exemplified in the age-old question of the youth ministry, right? How far is too far, pastor? They hear law, sexual purity. So what's their natural question? Well, how can I love the Lord the more? How can I click closer? No, how close can I get? It's the unregenerate heart asking those questions. That's the sinful heart saying, okay, okay, how much can I get away with? Law, that's what law produces. So this is what Paul means by that the law is binding on a person as long as they live. It binds them in their sin. I hope you begin to see, okay, this has some pretty big implications for how I parent my children. Has pretty big implications for what the mission of the church is. Has pretty big implications for how I battle sin in my own life. And the only way out, Paul says, is, is through death. But this is precisely the good news of the gospel. Death has occurred. And it has freed us to belong to another, Paul says. Look in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. In other words, by God's grace, through faith, get this, here's the play on words on the analogy, we've been released from the law so that we may marry another. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying, to belong to the other. It's the same phrase of the, the woman cannot belong to another until she's freed from the law. That's the analogy. You were bound in sin under the law, and until death released you, you could never be united to him. I hope you're seeing the logical priority of these things. This is the need of grace and the inability of the law. It can't do that. It binds you. It has the opposite effect. But when death has occurred through Christ, we now are married to him. We're freed. We're freed. So what he's talking about here is that both Christ's death and his resurrection are now attributed to us. That's the good news. Okay, death, you can solve that problem. You can get out from under the law through death. There's ways to do that. The problem is it's living again right? Well, Jesus does that. He's the only one who died and rose again. And therefore, by his death, the dominion of the law ceases, and by his resurrection, we are now able to live in newness of life. This verse is really just what we saw in chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like him. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order, notice the purpose, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is that great passage in Galatians 2.20. You know it? You know that passage? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is where we begin to see the newness of the Spirit. The law is external. It's hard. It's not fleshly. It's outside of us. It, it leaves us bound in judgment. Why? Because we're separated from God. It doesn't close the gap. But through union with Christ, we're now in a loving relationship. You see that? We're now in a marriage. We're now in a fruitful marriage, a loving marriage, which now changes the game, changes everything for us. Paul is saying that the gospel of grace freed us from the dominion of law to bring us into a loving marriage with Christ. This comes back to chapter 5, verse 5, where he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. That's the ministry of the Spirit, he says, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul reminds us that our certain hope, our hope of redemption, our hope of glory, is all now based on the love of God which has been poured into us. That's very intimate, isn't it? The law was very distant. We were far from God. It was scary. The writer of Hebrews describes it. It was a mountain of thunder and lightning and fire and quaking. I don't know about you, but most people run from that. Well, that's what our situation under the law is. But Christ has come as a loving bride or a loving groom to seek his bride. He's released us and he says, you're my bride. I love you. I've come to rescue you. And on the basis of that now, my obedience is not get God off my back. It's because I'm in a loving, flourishing relationship with my Savior. And now I respond out of gratitude. Those of you who are married, you know that's the basis by which your relationship works, right? It's an abundance of love that, that the husband serves his wife and the wife submits to her husband. If there is no love, all that doesn't work. It's all duty. It's all because the scripture says it, and I guess I have to do it. But when there's flourishing love, there's mutuality happening, and relationship flourishes. And so I can ask my wife, hey, would you do these things? And she says, why should I do that for you? She doesn't do that. When I love you, right? No. Or when she asks me to do things, I'm willing to sacrifice, not to earn her favor, but because I love her. Well, that's the same way. That's why Paul says in Ephesians that marriage is a mystery, and I tell you, it doesn't speak to what you think it th speaks to. It th speaks to the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. That's why our roles matter. We're communicating this relationship of a loving Savior having redeemed us and loved us and given himself for us and washing us so he says here it's a marriage but this marriage has a purpose the end of verse 4 he says in order that we may bear fruit for God and that's our third part, point we bear fruit by the spirit and so in contrast to being under the law whereby we were in a hostile relationship okay that's your position if you're not a regenerate believer you are hostile to God but now, by the Spirit, through this marriage, 
we have been brought into a loving relationship with him. And this relationship is experienced, as we're going to see, through the indwelling Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in us, he makes us obedient from the heart. That's what we saw last week, right? Verse 17 of chapter 6, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Well, how did that happen? That was God's Spirit coming into you and regenerating your heart bringing your dead heart to life. The heart that hated God now loves God, wants to trust God, wants to put his faith in God. That's what it does. And look in verse 6. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is where we're getting at right here. There is a contrast of how we now serve how we now live. It's not the old way of the written code, of the law that was written on stone tablets that was outside of us. No, it's the new way of the Spirit. What's the new way of the Spirit? To see this, I want us to look at two Old Testament passages. We already looked at one, Jeremiah 31, in, in our pastoral prayer time, but I want us to turn there again. So you need to go to your Old Testament. If you go Psalms, Proverbs, get to Isaiah, just keep flipping, you'll get to Jeremiah. And listen to what Jeremiah, let me, let me just highlight some of this. This is what God's promising because Israel's under the old covenant. They're under the Mosaic law, which, has, which does not have the power to regenerate their hearts and cause them to be worshipers of God. And so God says, through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay? This is a new covenant that's going to be here. A new promise, a, a new sense of relationship between us, is what God says. And he contrasts, he says, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You, you see that? This marriage relationship, even though I was your husband, they broke it. Because something hadn't happened in their hearts yet. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them. But before that, it was outside of them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's coming a day, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant that deals with your sin, that brings you into a relationship with me and puts my law inside of you. It's going to change you. You don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel expounds upon it this way. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19 and 20, he says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. 
that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Brothers and sisters, this is what we mean by the new covenant. When we talk about the new covenant in Christ, we talk about the Lord's Supper where Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's talking about this new relationship with God's people. This new means by which God has now solved the sin dilemma and brought us near to Him. And so three things occur under the new covenant that you need to understand. Number one, the law will not be external to us anymore, but it's going to be internal. No longer is it a demand coming from the outside, but a desire being produced from the inside. That's what Paul said, you become obedient from the heart. It's a work from the inside out that God initiates. Law comes from the outside. It can't do it. Number two, neither will knowing God be an external command. Know the Lord amongst the community of the believers. That's why our membership reflects those who profess the Lord. In Israel, it was a mixed membership. If you were born in Israel and you uh, said, I'll put myself under the law. You were under the covenant, but that didn't mean that you were actually a believer. Well, here, through the signs of the covenant of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, you enter into the covenant community of church membership. That's why membership matters. Because it says something that you know the Lord. It doesn't make you know the Lord. It's a, an expression that you know the Lord. And, and that's why we do that. We're under the new covenant. And so knowing the Lord will not be something outside. There's the Lord out there, or there's the Lord, you know, i got to go talk to the pastor to know the Lord, or i got to go to this special mountain to know the Lord, or i got to worship in this special place. No, now knowing the Lord will be an inward experience because the Lord will dwell in you through His Holy Spirit. Number three, the covenant is based on the forgiveness of sins, and it's ratified by Jesus' death and resurrection. The sacrifices, the blood and bulls and goats, they could never take away sin. They could never do it. That's why they were always repeated. The law had the, did not have the ability to address sin. But the new covenant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, does. And so we are now new covenant believers. You might even see churches called New Covenant Church or something like that. I think that's a good name. I'm not suggesting anything changes here. I'm just saying. That's what we are, okay? We're new covenant believers. And if you're a believer, you know the Lord because the Lord dwells in you through His Spirit. And so those under the new covenant have the Spirit and then will bear fruit by the Spirit. This is Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. The law is the old way, written on code, that cannot produce the fruit of a changed life, Paul says. Because it's outside of us. And what we need is a work inside of us. Okay? So that's the ground that I wanted to cover. Lay that foundation for everything that we're going to see. Paul's going to get a little bit more practical, but to kind of tease you to come back next week, I want, you, I want us to consider just a few things. An application. I want you to come to reality 
And I want us to meditate and think on this. And I've been praying for us that as we sometimes relapse to the old way of the law, that the Lord would start bringing these passages to our mind. And then we say, oh, that, that doesn't bring life. Why am I doing that? I, I want us to, by conviction and experience the freedom of knowing Christ by understanding that the gospel is the only solution to be freed from the law, sin, and death. That is the only hope for us and the only hope for humanity. It's the only hope. And this is because only through the gospel do we experience the love of God through the gift of the Spirit who resurrects hearts in order to love Him and desire to obey Him. And if this is the case, then, brothers and sisters, we cannot expect change to come the old way of the written code. That law will result in death. Yet strangely, we relapse into this. Paul says this to the Galatians. He says to them, having begun by the Spirit, are you somehow now being perfected by the flesh? They went back to the old ways. If I do this, then God will be pleased with me. And he says, is that how, you, how the Lord entered a relationship with you to begin with? So why do you think that would be the basis of how he deals with you now? And that's really where I want us to see this. And I want to see it on three levels. And this is where I hope to get more practical over the next couple of Sundays, but to whet your appetite, on the individual level. What does walking in the newness of the Spirit look like for you personally as you battle sin? Well, newness of the Spirit means I cultivate my affections for the Lord rather than living out of duty. This is living out of duty. This is law right here. Fight sin apart from cultivating a relationship with Christ. Fight sin without growing your affections and your love for Him. It's approaching Scripture reading, worship, prayer, the fellowship with the saints of, I guess I got to do that because the pastors say I have to. I don't want you to do that if that's your hard attitude. That'll make you self-righteous. That'll make you hard and make you a jerk. It will. But the person who says, I love the Lord. I love his people. In fact, that's what John says. If you want to know you truly know the Lord, you love God and you love his people. You love them. You love to be around them. But if you say, well, that's what I got to do because that's what I said I'd do when I joined this church and that's what I, you know, that's, that's law. You're, you're dealing with it as if that's duty. It shouldn't be duty. It's, it's the natural outflow of the, of the heart that says, I love Christ. And when I'm with people, I see what God's doing in their life and I'm encouraged. I want to worship Him because I'm so grateful. I was dead. I was in shackles. I was in slavery. And He's the one who came in and busted through those chains and says, come here with me. I'm going to bring you life. I want to sing to him. Do you sit here on the back row and just as we're singing, just look at the screen, just dull blank stare? I'm worried about you. I am. And my prayer is, not that I come up and slap you by the head and says, what's wrong with you? That's law. My prayer is that you would have your affections cultivated. Say, well, how do I do that? I can't do it. I'm stiff. Last place I want to be is here. You can start by giving thanks to God for all the great joys in your life. That's a simple way to do it. 
You have family, you have friends, you have hobbies, you get satisfaction out of your work or, or some projects that you work in. Do you give thanks to God for that? That ability? That satisfaction of, of, of doing something and accomplishing it or experiencing this? You know that every good thing that you experience in life comes from your Heavenly Father above? You now cultivate a love because you're, you're thanksgiving, which is what unbelievers don't do. They don't give thanks. Moving on, because I've got three weeks of sermons to try and do all this. The family. If we understand how to live in the newness of the Spirit as individuals, then this should permeate how we function as a family. And I'm talking about your, your biological family right now. Husband, wife, children, if you have a family. And by the Spirit, living in the newness of the Spirit, the family... You begin to share the affection stirred up by your individual relationship with Christ with your family. Let me tell you about the Lord's doing in my life. Or, or you just live out of joy and love. You exude the fruit of the Spirit and it permeates your home. You begin to give yourself for their pleasure as God in Christ gave himself for you. Do you see it? Law says... Hey, get in shape, kid, because I don't want you to embarrass me. Or wife, do what I say. Or husband, get in line. And just commands, barking at people. That's law. and That's slavery. Newness of the Spirit covers a multitude of sins with love and grace. Newness of the Spirit fills the home with the joy of living in the freedom and the reign of Christ, knowing that it was God's grace that drew you to Him, not His law. Law says no as much as possible. Law says no to everything, thinking that you can control sin. That's what law is, right? I mean, really, parents? When we're, when we're barking out law, it's because we're fearful and we think we can control sin. Like it's this thing that's outside of them that we don't want to get in them, but the reality is, is that it's in them. And you can lock them up, you can hide them away, you can put them in a bubble, and you'll find out that sin will make its way in the bubble because it's always been there. And if you deal with it by law, there will be no change. You want gospel. It says no, law says no to things that have the potential to bring sin rather than saying no to actual sin. Do you see that? You can't do this, no, because this could happen. That enslaves your kids. And they begin to say, oh, I don't want to go to mommy and daddy because I already know the answer. It's no. It's always no. Do not taste, do not touch, do not look at because it could. That's why you can't have these things because it could lead to that. Mom and dad, do you trust the gospel's work in your child's life? Are you trusting that the spirit of God's going to work in, you, in them? Because it was the Spirit of God who brought you to life, not the law. But somehow we start lawing our kids thinking that's going to produce gospel. I know I'm running out of time, but I, I wanted to say those things. Let me say one more thing about parenting. Law parenting dies on every hill. Every hill. Everything's a big deal. Everything's a big deal. And ultimately, mom and dad, if you parent by law, you will forfeit relationship with your children when they're no longer in need of being dependent upon you. 
That's what will happen. They won't want to come to you because law built this barrier between you and them the whole time. And it'll forfeit that relationship and the ability of your child to trust that you actually care about what is best for them. That's what will happen when we parent by law. Corporately, what does newness of the Spirit look like? It communicates that the church is a safe place for sinners, but it's not a safe place for sin. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's my heart, that individually and then as families, we are living in the freedom of the gospel and that collectively when we come here, sinners feel safe because the sinners in our own home feel safe when they come to us. And we, in our own individual lives, understand it's safe to come to God and confess our sins, knowing that he will cover them. When that permeates us, that's freedom, brothers and sisters. It's freedom. Law demands that others meet our expectations or meet our standard of righteousness before they can be accepted by us. I was doing, I was looking at a study on the issue of individuals leaving the church over the matter of homosexuality. And of those who said they left an evangelical church over this matter, 97% of them said it wasn't because they disagreed with what was being preached from the pulpit. That it wasn't over doctrinal matters. It wasn't what the Bible said about it. The number one reason that these individuals left is because the moment they shared it with anyone, the relationship was over. Brothers and sisters, that's law. That's law. If this cannot be a safe place for sinners, then it is no hope for anyone. We want to be a safe place. Not just for those who battle with that sin. All sins. All sins. When I say it's not a safe place for sin, it's, it's saying, hey, let's come. Let's trust Christ. Let's, let's embrace the gospel. He died for this so that you would no longer be enslaved to these things. And let's battle together and let me link arms with you as we wager and war together. By the grace of God. Mom and Dad, what would you do your child comes to you and says, I have homosexual desires. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when they say, Mom and Dad, my girlfriend's pregnant? Mom and Dad, I've been looking at pornography. Mom and Dad, I've done this. How you respond will show whether you understand the gospel and the new ways of the Spirit or whether you Work under the old written code of the law. And brothers and sisters, over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to unpack this more. And my hope is that we leave here saying, grace abounds. Grace is good. And grace gives freedom from sin. Okay? We're going to pray, and I'm just going to close. We won't have a closing song today. Dear Heavenly Father, heavy truths, but Lord, how dare we think that we could come to your word and think that you would not shake us up. Lord, I pray that your grace would abound 
that we would see that, that it's liberating. And it doesn't lead to more sin. It leads to righteousness. It leads to holiness. It, it leads to life. Lord, that you would be working that gospel in us until our dying breath. And until that day, Lord, I pray that we would be a fragrant smell of life to our community around us. And that people would not say, oh, I could never go there because if I told them what I did, they would never accept me. I pray they'd say, I want to go there because that's where people get help. That's where people find life. Lord, work in our hearts, tug our hearts that direction through your word, through your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.